This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Dr. Angela Mackey, a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota. Eating disorders impact an estimated 3 to 15% of adolescents, and if left untreated or only partially treated, can become chronic conditions. Relapse is also common in eating disorders, with about 40% of patients reporting at least one relapse in some studies. Despite these sobering statistics, when adolescent patients complete a course of good evidence-based treatment, they can expect to make and maintain a full recovery from their symptoms. As primary care providers, it's our job to help our patients and families find care and determine whether the care they're getting is having the right effect. Even though eating disorder treatment is hard to come by, The fact is evidence-based treatment for eating disorders does exist and usually involves both medical and mental health providers. This episode is the fourth episode in our eating disorders edition focused on how primary care physicians and providers can treat children with eating disorders. This episode will concentrate on different types of eating disorder treatment, what's out there and what the evidence says works best. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jocelyn Lebo, a Mayo Clinic Children's Center child and adolescent psychologist and one of my colleagues and collaborators in the Mayo Clinic Primary Care Child and Adolescent Eating Disorder Clinic. Thank you for joining us again today, Dr. Lebo. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's get started by really breaking down what are the different types of eating disorder treatment and more specifically, what does the evidence say about these treatment for eating disorders in children and adolescents? Because some of them are much more effective than others. The good news about eating disorder treatment for kids is it's got some better outcome data for at least for child and adolescent anorexia as compared to adults. At the outpatient level, there are a couple different modalities. For patients with anorexia, the first line therapy is something called family-based treatment. This is this is an evidence-based treatment that involves the whole family. Parents are put in charge of meal monitoring and meet usually weekly with a trained psychologist or mental health provider to help their child gain weight and restore. There really aren't any other evidence-based treatments outpatient for adolescent anorexia. FBT also has some pretty good evidence for bulimia nervosa. So families can help their kids normalize their eating and eliminate binge eating and purging. For bulimia and binge eating disorder, you can do a special type of CBT, which is an individual therapy that parents can kind of help with. But again, it's a trained psychologist delivering it. That has pretty good outcome data for both binge eating disorder and bulimia. And dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a program with with groups and with individual therapy, that can also be helpful for binge eating and purging. For ARFID, it's newer, so we're still getting treatments that are validated, but there's some evidence that CBT or other sort of similar type modalities can work. Some of these kids also do well with a multidisciplinary approach that includes OT and things like that. What are the providers that are on the team that help treat these patients with eating disorders? And do they have specific different roles that are really important in their recovery and their treatment? So for outpatient treatment, which is what we're talking about, usually it's one trained mental health provider. And I think it's important to know a general psychologist or a general therapist doesn't usually have this type of training. Ideally, you get somebody certified in the modality, but it absolutely has to be someone who specializes in eating disorders. This is a really specialized type of care that people don't just learn in graduate school. So you're meeting with a trained mental health professional. All of these approaches that I just talked about, CBT, FBT, and DBT, all the acronyms, none of them need a broader team. Again, I mentioned some of the ARFID interventions will work with dietetics, they'll work with OT, but all of these providers really just have a mental health provider sort of leading the charge. 
Additionally, they're going to want medical monitoring. And that's, I think, a lot of times where you guys come in. I don't ever feel comfortable treating a patient with anorexia who doesn't have a medical doctor at least working in the background, if not more closely with me to make sure that they stay medically stable. Once patients start to make progress, once they start to move forward, you know, the role of the PCP gets a little bit less. But in the beginning, I want somebody telling me that this patient is medically stable to be doing this treatment. I want somebody making sure that all of those sort of lab values and, and other sorts of values are, are staying safe so that we can keep pushing through. Angie, maybe it helps for you to talk about when you have a patient who's seeing somebody outpatient for FBT, for CBT, what do you usually do? Yeah, I think the most important thing first is to collaborate with them and find out what they need of you. As a medical provider, we are very well positioned to understand growth charts and understand how children go. So one of the very first things is setting weight range targets. And these, I would not recommend sharing with the patient or the family because that might not be the approach. And on our clinic, we don't give them numbers because patients tend to fixate them on them, but you can share that with your collaborating therapist or the person who's doing the type of treatment. I would recommend looking at the growth chart and seeing where the child has historically grown. And this may require that if this patient was seen in multiple different places, you get those numbers because the trends are incredibly predictive of how that child should grow. I teach my residents that children find a percentile range and they grow on it. And if they're not growing on it, there's something going on and you need to figure that out. So you look at their height velocity because height velocity may have changed as a result of the malnutrition. And you want to make sure they are hopefully getting back up to that height velocity. But most importantly, you want to look at their weight range. And usually that's going to be a percentile range with goals and their BMI range. So if the child was previously between 60th and 75th percentile, and they were there for from four until 12, that's where they need to get back to. And I don't care how low they are, but that's where that child's genetic predisposition was to grow. I think that the other thing that's important is just to make sure everyone on the team, so you and the mental health provider on the same page with that range. Mm -hmm. There are some providers who never talk about weight at all with their patients with eating disorders, which again, it's not quite the manualized approach, but, but some people have more resources in their clinics than others. But whether you're being expected to track the weight or not is a good conversation to have and to make sure that regardless, mm -hmm. you and that mental health provider are giving the same information about you've got a ways to go or here's where I think you should be because it really undermines treatment when they're getting mixed messages about where they're going to be able to stop. Other things that I would have look at besides just where they need to go back to is that medical monitoring piece. And so often if you're collaborating with a mental health provider, they need you to be doing a medical evaluation first to look for signs of medical instability. And the second reason would be to look for other reasons of weight loss. I think parents are still out there searching. And also as a pediatrician, sometimes I'm wondering if there's something else going on when I'm not hearing a lot up front. And we have diagnosed patients with concurrent type one diabetes and anorexia or concurrent celiac disease and anorexia nervosa. So there's things that you need to, to rule out. So we would recommend labs. We would recommend um, orthostatic vital signs and EKG, and then making sure that there's no signs for admission. Once you've made sure that the child is medically stable and there's no reason that you need to admit them, the next thing would be 
having them probably come in for weekly weight checks. In our clinic, until they can get um, into appropriate level of treatment for their eating disorder, we recommend their primary care provider see them weekly until they start that treatment. And depending on where you're at, this could be three months, this could be longer, it could be shorter. You want to make sure that that patient is not continuing to lose weight or losing weight at a rate that is very concerning. And if they are continuing to lose weight, then you need to consider redoing more labs, um, making sure that there isn't a reason for admission at that point, and also doing orthostatic vital signs, sometimes EKG at those times as well. If they are gaining weight and are stable, then mostly just blood pressure, heart rate, and orthostatic vital signs, along with their weight at each visit and height would be sufficient. All the manuals say that the provider of the therapy should be weighing them on average about weekly and measuring their height. Again, some providers do that, some providers don't. I think someone needs to be doing that. That's a conversation to have with that provider once they start the care. This is a psychiatric and medical illness. So really that collaboration is so important. And I would say the primary care provider needs to be giving the same messages that they're hearing from their therapist. So talking about those messages is going to be really important. The key messages being the only medicine that's going to help them is food and food is their medicine, and also setting expectations about what this, this journey of treatment will be like. Um, it's important the family know that things are going to look worse before they get better. Their mood may look worse. It may cause a lot of psychosocial stress on the family. And your job is to continue giving them the same messaging that you insist on full weight restoration and the same goals that that therapist has set for that patient. And that we understand that they are struggling with their mood um, or their anxiety or what other mental health symptoms that you may be seeing. But the only thing that's going to make that better is likely food. And if there's still concerns after we get their malnourished brain better, we can continue to address those with appropriate therapy or medications at that time. We've talked about outpatient treatment, but there are multiple different levels of treatment. Jocelyn, can you talk about what those levels are and how would a provider know when a patient needs to be seen in a higher level of care? especially working with kids, this is my bias maybe, but I think we need to work hard to make sure that kids are getting the lowest level of care that will adequately address their symptoms. When you move up in step levels of care, the disruption gets bigger to people's lives, right? They're taken out of school, they're taken out of their sports or their social life. And, and that matters to everybody, but for kids who are, have all that psychosocial development, it can be really disruptive. So again, we want to try the lowest level of care as long as it's going to work. But if it's not working, higher levels of care are out there and are important pieces of this for, for kids. For all eating disorders, there are day treatment programs. Sometimes these are called intensive outpatient programs. Sometimes they're called partial hospitalization programs. There are residential treatment programs. One is where you go either several times a week after school for a couple hours or during the day. Some you go five days a week from eight to five, they do the meals, they do therapy, and then the residential programs, obviously you go and you stay. Some of this is a little bit pie in the sky. Some of this is about what you can access. There are not enough eating disorder programs, period. There aren't enough eating disorder program providers, period. So I recognize what I'm telling you is like in a perfect world where you have all the resources and perfect insurance <laughs> and it's not a pandemic. But when you wanna to start to think about a higher level of care, you look at for symptom wise, how severe are the symptoms? If a patient is 
medically stable, but their cognitive symptoms are so bad. Their behavioral symptoms are so bad that parents can't get them to eat. They're sitting for days and days and not taking anything in. Their behavior is escalating to the point where they're running away or where they're getting suicidal and parents just can't. You're not going to be able to do that parent-led meal monitoring. That's such an important part of anorexia treatment with bulimia or binge eating. You know, if there's uncontrolled purging, if parents can't keep them stable, if kids can't keep themselves stable, then you might need a higher level of care where you get a structured environment where they're going to get enough food, where they're going to be kept safe. That's a really reasonable referral sort of up the ladder. Same thing if parents just logistically can't do treatment. They can't bring their kid to treatment every week, or, you know, in the case of FBT, they can't monitor the meals that, you know, we have parents who are wonderful, really engaged, but, but they're single moms or they work a bunch of shifts and they, they just can't provide the structure and the support, then a higher level of care where they're going to monitor the meals is going to be helpful. Same thing if the parent has their own mental health concerns or things that make it difficult for them to engage. Finally, again, especially for the parent-led interventions, we would never recommend doing FBT or something like that in a, in a situation where there's been abuse history, where the parent is a perpetrator of abuse. Doing all this, whether it's normalizing binge purge behaviors or whether it's meal monitoring to increase weight, it increases the stress on the family. It increases the stress on the patient. So everything that's bad is going to get worse. If a family can't handle that strain, and it is not small, it is a very, very big thing to ask. If they can't handle that, then they need to have an environment where they get more support and can be kept safe. Along the lines of being kept safe, what if the child is having suicidal thoughts or needs to be admitted um, to make sure that they are not going to be a harm to themselves? What level of care would that look like? So this is a really great question because it happens a lot. The tricky thing with this is most inpatient psych units are not eating disorder units. They are very different. Most places where you would refer a patient who's actively suicidal, they do not do eating disorder treatment. If a patient is actively suicidal, it does not matter. That trumps everything else. You want to send them to the emergency room. You want to send them someplace where they will be kept safe from that sort of acute risk. If a patient has passive suicidality or if it's less of an acute risk, then it may be that you need a residential treatment center for eating disorders. If the suicidality kind of increases every time that they try to eat more or every time they try to kind of address some of these symptoms, they might need that extra level of support. But again, if there's an acute risk, that takes priority. Then you send them to the ER, you call 911, you do whatever sort of your crisis plan is in your clinic to, to triage and get these patients safe. What's the difference between an inpatient eating disorder treatment program and a residential treatment program? So, and these terms are confusing and honestly, some of them are like insurance driven and things like that. I always think about if a patient's medically unstable, which I know we've talked about, they need to go inpatient to basically a hospital-based program that will help them stabilize, that will help their dehydration, will hook them up to telemetry, will make sure that they are medically stable to progress through treatment. These are typically brief programs. You're there as long as you're medically unstable. Residential programs are programs where you do the refeeding in-house. So these can be multiple weeks. They can sometimes be months. They can sometimes be longer than that. And again, the difference is really level of medical instability. Medical instability is something sort of separate from this, like we've talked about before. That's when you have to refer to a medical unit acutely to make sure that kids are stabilized. Well, can a primary care provider tell if their patient isn't getting better or isn't getting the appropriate level of care and needs to go to a higher level? This is tough. And why I think, first of all, in the beginning, getting a release to talk to that provider and have communication about what's actually happening in that treatment is going to be really important. I think if you have a kid who's not gaining weight, 
if you have a kid who's severely underweight and not gaining or is working individually with a provider, which isn't really an evidence-based approach, and those physical metrics aren't changing, I think that's cause for concern. If parents don't know what's happening in their kids' treatment, that's not typical. That's not supported in the literature for anorexia. For kids with bulimia, it's a little bit different. But again, it's, I think it's the same thing. If their binge purge behaviors are staying pretty constant and nobody appears to be changing the approach, I think that's a concern. I also think that it's a good sign. It's maybe not a necessary sign, but it's a good sign if when I get a patient, I'm harassing their primary care provider from day one. I need to know how this kid is doing medically. If you aren't hearing from the provider, especially in the early days of treatment, it's not a rule out, but it makes me nervous about their treatment. It makes me worried that they may not know all the sort of risks. As a primary care provider, I've seen many different times when patients have had very different levels of care, whether it's been outpatient treatment, especially with FBT for anorexia, or patients that have even done residential treatment, that they were not successful in the treatment for whatever reason. Maybe a the family wasn't able to do outpatient treatment, and they're not able to go to a higher level of care for whatever reason, whether it's financial or psychosocial reasons. Or if a patient has been in inpatient treatment, is not making progress, or has a contract, and they are not adhering to their contract and are unsuccessfully discharged from their program, they show back up in my office. And as a primary care provider, sometimes it's really hard because I don't feel like I know what to do. But also as a primary care provider that has more treatment and eating disorders, I feel conflicted because I want them to get evidence-based treatment, but they're not getting it. Do you have any advice for providers when they show back up in their office and they've been unsuccessfully discharged from a program? These situations are so hard. And usually it happens when either a family is burnt out or doesn't really realize the severity of it, or like doesn't quite have their head around the eating disorder diagnosis, won't accept it, or just can't get it together to kind of do the things that are being recommended. It's the worst. It's the hardest. It's, I know it doesn't sit well with me. It doesn't sit well with you, but they're, they're in your office. You're their primary care provider. What do you do? I think the answer, as much as it is unsatisfying, I think the answer is harm reduction. I think the answer is making sure that they are medically monitored so that there's not an acute medical risk. And if, if there is one of those and they're not following up, then it's a, a medical neglect situation. But if they're medically stable, it's just keeping them coming back to look at their labs, to look at their weight, to not let them, I guess, forget or pretend that nobody thinks this is an issue. Mm -hmm. I think that's actually a pretty powerful intervention when you're like, yeah, you cannot go to treatment, but you're going to have to be in my office every two weeks to get a blood draw or to get an EKG or to get orthostatics. That I think is powerful and important. And then just repeating that message over and over again. This is, the you need treatment. You need treatment. You need eating disorder treatment. Using motivational interviewing strategies when you can, but just, I guess, not letting anyone pretend that there's another choice. I don't know. Do you have other things that you do in that situation, Ange? I think it's kind of like treating a patient with a, an addiction. Sometimes they need to hit rock bottom before we can get them into treatment where everyone is on board. And so I agree with you. The monitoring is important, having them come back, but also the messaging is important. You need to say exactly what is going on. And these are the hardest conversations to have. They're uncomfortable, especially if the patient and the family isn't on board and just saying, in my medical opinion, I feel you have an eating disorder. You can die from this. And I do think that you need treatment. And when you're ready to do 
a higher level of treatment, let me know and we will try and get you into it. But my recommendations at the very minimum, and this is not what is evidence-based, but we need to make sure you don't lose further weight. And sometimes even having a contract that if they continue to lose a certain amount of weight at that point, maybe the family will say, we're going to then go to a higher level of treatment because sometimes it's a little bit of a bargaining that they're doing, especially with their teens and their older teens. It can be really challenging. Those 16, 17, and almost 18 year olds are just so hard. And sometimes the family says, let's just give them one more chance. And I say, okay, one more chance, but then we have to follow through on this. And that means pulling the parent aside and having private conversations saying, can you follow through on this? Because we can't threaten this if we're not going to follow through on this, because this is your child's life. And I know this is challenging and stressful and difficult, but we need to make sure that if we're going to tell them this message, we're going to follow through on it. The one last thing I would add to that too, and this is so hard, but resist the urge to try to find another plan. We know what they need. They need eating disorder treatment and it can be tempting. You know, parents are like, well, no, I think it's no one's addressed, addressed her depression or her, her trauma or her, and those things are there, but we know they don't, they, they can't they're be effectively addressed. Yeah, yeah. They're distractors. The thing she needs first is eating disorder treatment. And so it can be tempting you want to help the family. You want to give them something. And, and it feels like, oh, something might be better than nothing, but it's like giving them either too low dose or the wrong medication, right? When we know what they need. So staying on message and not entertaining a wild goose chase of, well, do we need to rule out certain other medical things that we all know aren't a thing? Or do we need to, again, treat other psychological things that just delays care, which is really dangerous. So the take-home message is try and get your patients into treatment and the appropriate level of treatment is always ideal. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about the treatment of eating disorders with Dr. Jocelyn Lebo. Thank you for your time, Jocelyn. It was great to speak with you again. Uh, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Angela Mackey or follow along on my Facebook Live and podcast called Ask the Mayo Mom on Mayo Clinic's Facebook. Stay healthy and see you next week.